actually you can't have a future without the past and cutting us off from our past is like I think extremely destructive so I so I think yeah I think poetry can be a way of, of kind of moving into the past and not just talking about it but connecting with it in that direct way Welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics, with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. We're really excited about today's guest, Rebecca Tamash, who is a writer, poet and lecturer, author of the poetry collection Witch, which came out with Penned in the Margins in 2019, and the essay collection Strangers, Essays on the Human and Non-Human, which was released last year by Makina Books. She is also co-editor with Sarah Shin of the 2018 Ignota Books anthology Spells, Occult Poetry for the 21st Century. She's a lecturer in creative writing at York St John University, where she co-curates the York Centre for Writing Poetry Series. We wanted to apologise in advance for the diminished audio quality of this interview. We had a microphone glitch, so we weren't able to use our usual equipment. Hello, Rebecca. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Tender Buttons. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We thought it would be nice to start with a reading so could you maybe introduce your poem yeah of course so um this poem is called spell for the witch's hammer and it comes from my collection which which was published um by pen of the margins in 2019 and i think that the most important thing you probably need to know to understand this poem is that the witch's hammer is the english translation of the title of a book by a 16th century clergyman called Heinrich Kramer, uh, which was titled in Latin, Maleus Maleficarum, and it's basically a kind of very sort of famous, infamous witch hunting manual. So it describes both how to find witches, but it also talks about uh, kind of why they're so terrible and evil. And as you can imagine, it's an extremely kind of sexist, misogynist text. And so thinking about that text is kind of what got me started thinking about this poem. Spell for the witch's hammer. A two-pronged sword to put them down. Out there, a lot of things happen. Witches undo each other, a candle in each opening. Witches wake at night and cry. Beasts with curly horns comfort them, suck gently. Witches go astray, carnality swooping and fluttering like a ragged flag. They laugh so much, covered in purple bruises, teaching tricks, GPS of the eternal flagellant light, always going home. The witch's hammer sinks into flesh, then disappears, and only mercury remains, its little peasant trail. The witches eat your book, then you, then everything. Um, if you could give you a definition of a witch, like what does the word witch mean to you? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one because I feel like there are so many different ways to imagine a witch. But I think for me, and in the context, I suppose, of this book, which for me is just, of course, eternally tied up in how I kind of see and think about witches. A witch is someone who can use language to make material change in the world. So to me, that's kind of what a spell is. And so a witch is someone that has control of, of kind of magical language and can change and transform things through that language. Yeah, and that's very interesting thinking about poetry, because I feel like in some of your work, it's almost like poetry itself is magic. Yeah, I think I think that part of what I was kind of interested in in writing this book was maybe sort of stealing some of the kind of intensity that you get in magical language but also some of the confidence so this idea you know obviously if you write a spell or a hex or a curse or whatever it might be there's a kind of deliberate sort of belief obviously that that, that language is going to create change you know like I was saying and I think poetry actually 
can do that. I think poetry can create change and it can have that kind of quasi-magical quality, but it's perhaps not one that we're always sort of feel that we can express or maybe we even feel embarrassed to kind of express or that we feel like it's perhaps a little bit egoistic to kind of claim that power for poetry. But actually, I think it's quite important to think about it in that way, not in the sense that poetic language is going to, you know, turn someone into a toad, nor is it going to kind of necessarily create some huge political shift in the moment in a kind of very quick manner as much as we might wish it could. But I do think, like, I really don't agree that poetry makes nothing happen. You know, that's that sort of like slightly overused cliche Auden phrase. I think poetic language because it almost remakes and dismantles language, it can also kind of remake and dismantle thinking. You know, we can't help but think in language. So when we change language and we change the kind of capabilities and parameters of what language is in poetry, I think we also change what it's possible for us to think. And I think that's quite a, can be an extremely sort of powerful tool for lots of different things and aims and needs and desires yeah i was thinking as well rebecca with um the essay that you wrote for the white review around the time i think that which came out and you wrote about kind of the politics of emotion how magical language or the poetry of which can be a kind of refute of the language of distance you know that came out in the western enlightenment and this kind of like rationality and thinking through the body in order to like write poetry so i guess mm. i'm interested in how poetry can bring one closer to the body or how one can embody oneself through poetry. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think f for me, in some ways, poetry, I suppose, can be a way to potentially restore or fix, though obviously not fully, some of that kind of brokenness that we have that's come exactly from what you talk about, this, this very sort of hyper-rationalist version of enlightenment thinking in which the mind and the body are very separate in which emotion and kind of knowledge are very separate etc etc and I think that poetry can embody us in that way because I think it can sort of again create forms of language which sort of go beyond the rational which include the body but not just include the body in the sense of like describing it but obviously you know that can be beautifully done in poetry but I think having sort of almost body directed poetry and trying to find ways to sort of center bodily experience as a form of knowledge and, and knowing and understanding in itself rather again than falling into that binary that the body is about sensuality and sort of pleasure but also corruption and that the mind is for understanding you know i think it can blur those boundaries quite effectively i mean in regard to the witch i think again even if you're just thinking of the witch purely as a symbol, I think it's a fantastic symbol of someone who, you know, obviously their kind of magical power, so to speak. Yes, it resides in the spells that they have and it resides in the language that, that they have, you know, as I was talking about earlier, but it's also something that inherently resides in them as a bodily kind of knowledge as well. So I think they're quite a good site to maybe talk around the fact that the body and the mind aren't as separate as we sort of like to think in this very sort of hierarchical, strict you know, Western version of, of how we move through the world. It's interesting thinking about spells and hexes as well, because they, in their very nature, seem to like denote a passing from an individual to a collective. So like the individual body moving to a collective body. So something that people can take across time and space in order to enact change, as we've talked about. I, I think that's absolutely true. And actually, that's why I, you know, in this book, I found it so powerful to be able to kind of use things like hexes and curses and so on because you know at the root of this book is obviously like a, a kind of sense a real interest in sort of feminist consciousness and kind of female identified liberation and all those types of things but a problem I suppose that I had when I began the book was okay yes I want to address you know feminist issues but I also was very interested in thinking about the absence of like female identified history so basically just the fact that you know thousands of years of you know female existence not very much record really of what any of those people thought or felt very small amounts so it's a huge kind of gap in our sense of ancestry and what we can access versions of what it might be to not only be a woman but actually also to break down and challenge that the expectations of gender to question gender itself you know all of these things often i think people feel they have to start from scratch but how could I talk about that, a 
as an individual woman coming from a very specific, you know, experience, in no way can I speak for my entire community. That would be, you know, inappropriate and deluded. But I think when you can tap into stuff like what you're talking about, hexes and that sort of thing, you can connect to a community voice without ever trying to suggest or claim that you speak for everyone, which obviously I don't and indeed no one can. So I think finding those forms allows you to be in conversation with the past and with your community in the way that fe- in a way that feels really exciting and kind of goes a little bit beyond again that quite westernized like lyric eye where everything is very very kind of held inside the self. I think it, it's really interesting too thinking about kind of like the tombs of history and politics and intellect and how so often like for me personally as a woman I feel like I I really do, I'm not saying that all women understand things emotionally, but I definitely understand things emotionally before I understand them theoretically, or like Mm. I feel them. So I feel like this idea of a language of emotion and kind of, not anti-theory at all, but kind of to give that equal weight to say this is actually just as important because politics is about bodies (laughs) and emotion. It feels like quite radical in that way. I completely, completely agree. Like, I, I feel like that is so at the heart, again, whether I achieved, I don't know, but, like, of the project of the book, which is this desire of, like, what would a revolution look like based on female principles? And when I say female principles, I don't mean anything that actually biologically, like, adheres to a female body, because that's not really a fixed thing. I mean, the kind of things that have been historically associated with women, which are considered, like, degraded emotion, the body, feeling, sexuality, you know, etc, etc. And of course, to be able to open up exactly the kind of bodily and sort of feeling knowledge that you're talking about is beneficial for everyone in the community, because I think that often, because we are culturally primed as women to sort of think like that, we perhaps have more access to it. But actually, I think everyone, whatever their gender, is doing that kind of thinking but perhaps either can't access it or feels sort of more, I don't know, embarrassed to share it or, or whatever. I, I, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I feel like emotional experience is at the heart of so many things which we consider to be questions of rationality. And I think you see that in political debate, especially at the moment, like even specifically in this country, in the UK, there's this bizarre void as if political decisions are being made because people are making rational choices. Then things keep happening whether it's Brexit or an election or whatever, that people are confused by because they expect people to make what they consider to be rational choices, obviously differ depending on what your perspective is, but actually so much of it is driven by emotion. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing, it depends, right? But it's like we don't want to confront that the political and the emotional, as you say, are just completely interlinked because, I don't know, what we find that sort of a bit too girly and wishy-washy, you know, it's terrible really because that's at the heart of so much of what's kind of going on. I was thinking as well, like um, within this and the kind of, it's been really interesting reading the connections between Strangers, your essay collection, and then Witch mm. and your your poetry there. And thinking about like the radical ecologies of writing across difference in terms of not just across different time frames, you know, writing back into Witches and the Suffragettes or whatever it might be, but also like writing across species. So like there's poems like Witch and the Devil where there's metamorphoses that happen where the bodies go beyond the human and how that feels mm-hmm. like part of this radical feminist consciousness of your work. And I guess I wonder the possibilities and the tensions you find in kind of trying to write, maybe that's bound up in the very title of Strangers because it's got so many layers to it, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think writing beyond the human is is a really good way to put it, but it also really sums up the challenge because I think on the one hand, you know, obviously as a human being or whatever, you know, interested in these kind of ecological non-human questions, you want to write towards the non-human, you want to write towards the alien, you know, in the foreign and in the sense that you want to, or it's tempting to try and kind of speak for it in an environmental sense, defend it, speak up for it, protect it, however, whatever, which is obviously, you know, in general, a good instinct. But at the same time, you'll, you know, as you say, the title of the book is Strangers. And like, obviously what I was very interested in in that book is 
that to talk in any way about the non-human you need to constantly kind of keep in mind and keep in view its difference its strangeness its alienness but also its agency you know like that alienness is not just like oh that's weird you know it's it's a meaningful profound alienness because it has its own existence which is different from yours will never be the same as yours and you have to kind of learn to respect it based on that rather than that it's necessarily a reflection of, of yourself or of the way that you see and experience the world so I think it's definitely something that I find tricky but also really interesting is like how can I connect because because you, you can't remain wholly kind of separate you're always going to be thinking towards it you're always going to be considering what more than human might be and what it might feel like but I think it's just always about trying to kind of I suppose like make that bridge clear never fall into that space in which there's Timothy Morton the ecological philosopher has this phrase um rendering where which he talks about certain kind of nature writing that renders the non-human world by which he just means it basically describes it, but in a way that tries to convince the reader that there's no gap between the non-human out there and the sort of narrator, the human narrator. It tries to kind of eradicate that boundary to create a sense of like smooth communication. But actually that is like philosophically and politically really dangerous because it suggests that we can like have whole control and understanding of something which we can't. And again, it just makes it more kind of fodder for our own needs and desires and it sort of excludes the reality of that kind of other being so i guess i want to build bridges this feels quite like a cringe metaphor but you know i want to build bridges but they always have to be clearly visible and apparent so that there's always an understanding that i can never fully kind of understand the non-human but i can hopefully like move towards yeah it. i was thinking as well like how i know you reference like pender's fen and there's like interest in folk horror there and it's almost like to maintain the strangeness. Horror can do that, right? Like folk horror can do that with, with the non-human to maintain an awe, but also for the non-human not to lose its strangeness and as to learn through that. So it's like also keeping the integrity of difference there, which I guess fiction can maybe, or poetry can do in a, in a more experimental way in some ways than non-fiction can. Yeah, uh, de well, de definitely, yes. I'm like, I think poetry you know one of the, obviously the nice things about poetry is that obviously you can just you can just juxtapose lots of language very quickly together and so you can move through those different modes very quickly in a way that's hardest to do in prose which is i think definitely useful for sort of like as you say having that mixture of awe strangeness but also intimacy you know kind of merging all those things but i think it's really interesting you said awe because it just reminds me of something i read recently um about a word which doesn't exist in the English language, which the Inuit have for their feeling towards nature. It's a specific word and it, it means a kind of awe, respect and nervousness at the same time. A sense, you know, and of course that's, that's quite specific because they live in a landscape, you know, which involves a kind of constant careful thinking, you know, because, you know, there are, so it's challenging that's in its own way the Arctic and, and so on. But I just thought that was such a fascinating way of thinking about, you know, the non-human in nature, because I think so often we try and soften our sort of like emotional response to the non-human as if that's what respect would look like, thinking it's cute and nice that somehow we have to feel that way to sort of express respect for it. But that kind of reminded me that that's not true. And as you say, the horror of it and the, you know, the freakiness of it and the strangeness of it can all be quite important to think about and accept as, as part of its reality. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's especially kind of vital when thinking about the climate, right? And this idea, like perhaps what's scary about it is that we've triggered this chain of events that feel like they're becoming out of our control, but we were actually never mm -hmm. in control of nature in the first place. And maybe the fact that we've kind of lost that because we think we are in control and, and we're like the dominant species or whatever like maybe mm. to have some of that awe and nervousness would kind of help us to understand like what's going on and what we need to yeah. rectify you know I don't necessarily mean practically but I think you know you speak mm. a lot about like um climate grief and climate despair in one of your essays and I guess so much of it is linked to this idea that we can't quite get our heads around the scale <laughs> of what we're facing yeah. 
Um, so I don't know if like the relate this kind of relationship with the non-human that you're talking about is linked to that too, to the idea of what's happening in the world. Definitely. And I think it's really true what you're saying. That like, as you say, we kind of we're realizing what we've done, so to speak, to the non-human world at the same time that we're realizing that we never had the control that we thought we had. Because obviously what we've done, yes, it's had a huge impact, but it this was never our plan. You, you know what I mean? It, it's all been a, been a kind of bit of a mistake. And so you have a situation where basically the, the more control we've sort of tried to, to kind of, you know, enact on the non-human world, the, the more things have got out of control and the more things have gone wrong. You know, like in a way it's very, it's almost like, embarrassingly straightforward you know we've, we've tried to bring everything under our control the more that we have and obviously that to me is like the capitalist mindset control 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 but actually that control which is designed to smooth out and remove fear and um you know sort of danger and, and hunger for let me say a small set of you know people but it's designed to protect them but actually what it's done is it ended up it's ended up creating a situation where even the richest and most privileged are somewhat at risk because climate change goes everywhere you know so it's it's had almost quite literally the opposite effect um and it's shown how how little we are in control and that is really important for me in the way that we think about the non-human whether it's in the actions that we take where we try and control things or whether it's in you know again the way that we think and try and control the meaning and the kind of you know, alleged reality of non-human in our thought, that's also like, you know, that's damaging too, because it's it's not allowing for the reality and the kind of unpredictability of that world. I was thinking, just to go back to language in that as well, um, in Strangers, I think it's in pans, the Panpsychism essay, where you mm. kind of write about like mental health being tied to ecological health. And I was thinking about how within this vanishing world of like species extinction, how that connects to a, a diminishing language. So like what you're saying about the Inuit language or lots of indigenous languages, like writers like Robin Orkimmer have done such amazing work around this. The richness of those languages, is there something in which, yeah, there's this vanishing world which meets with a vanishing language in the West at least? Yes, I, I completely think there is. And I think it almost goes in both directions. Our language becomes impoverished as that environment is destroyed and degraded, you know, a very kind of obvious, well-known example would be, you know, I think it was, um, you know, there was a bit of an uproar when this children's dictionary in the UK removed lots of words about nature. So it removed words like Hawthorne and Robin and, you know, whatever, and it replaced it with, you know, modem, etc. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a straightforward, you, you know, just trying to provide what they consider to be helpful for children. You know, I don't think they're evil people, but obviously that reflects like an impoverishment of language to describe what people see around them. Because these are all quite down to earth natural words, you know, they weren't anything sort of too sophisticated. So there's that. And then there's also, you know, as with all these things, the destruction and degradation of the environment, you know, goes along with the destruction and degradation of, you know, the homes and livelihoods of, you know, not just, you know, people without wealth, but specifically indigenous people, you know, as you mentioned, and with that, we lose forms of language which are much more effective at describing the multiplicity of that world and that's not some kind of sentimental idealization I would say that's you know, really quite factually the case I mean you mentioned Robert Wall Kimmerer you know and um, she has an article where she talks about um you know the Native American language of her grandparents um Potawatomi and talks about how they give pronouns to non-human creatures and and that obviously has a certain effect on how you think about and interact with non-human creatures obviously it's not straightforward you know everyone might use that differently but it's a sense of obviously kind of giving a sense of personhood to those creatures and i would say it seems likely that that's gonna encourage not guarantee more respect you know and more consideration of, of those creatures so absolutely i think language and action and how we move about in the world are so deeply enmeshed and I certainly find it to be like an under-discussed subject. You so often hear indigenous thinkers and philosophers talking about these issues but but in the kind of western discourse I, 
there's not a huge amount of thinking about the relationship between those two things and I think it's unfortunate because I think they have just huge ramifications as you're saying on each other. Mm. It's also as well going back to the kind of like hyper rationality that we discussed at the start the turning of subjects into objects through language or like rational language you know back in the enlightenment but it's like just proliferated and then the animism that Robin Wall Kimmerer describes with uh, what you've said in this article and in lots of other writings it's kind of like revivifying our connection and actually like creating a more equal terms by which we like give life to the non-human as, as opposed to it being something detached and an object I, I remember also like her writing about the number of verbs there are in Potawatomi as opposed to in English and how it just couldn't, English just couldn't contain the complexity and aliveness of the non-human. So if there could be more of a translation between these two, these different languages, like that would help create more subjects and shift us back away from this like objectification, I guess. Completely, I love the idea of creating more subjects. I think, I think that's exactly what it can do. And I think it's also quite important to kind of recognize you know i mean i obviously resist this like tele teleological thinking that like everything we do in regards to non-human has to sort of benefit us in some way but i do sort of think it's worth saying that like there is a powerful benefit for us in re-subjectifying and like reanimating the world because it's not a made-up fantasy that subjectivity and that agency and that individuality is there it's out there it's whether we can recognize it and i think it's a profoundly sort of like To, to me, it gives a vitality to our experience. I think it's quite unsatisfying for us to live in a purely human world. It's very boring, it's very samey, it's very repetitive, it, it's quite choking. And I think to be able to recognise the subjectivity of the non-human also slightly frees us from the kind of sense of sort of internal mental enclosure that I think we often do suffer from in these kind of hyper-rational societies. And I think there's an element of sort of psychological and kind of intellectual freedom there which is also really important as well as of course just recognizing and like respecting the non-human beings that are that we share a world with or i guess on like a very basic level like you, you have to be able if you want to change things you have to be able to name the world around you first right like namings or like being able to articulate something or call it by its name is like the first step right to any kind of action mm -hmm. And, and you need to be able to have forms of thinking that allow you to make that change. I mean, I feel like that is like at the heart of everything that I've ever wanted to write. And it will probably be a project for my whole life, whether it's strangers or what I'm working on now, whatever. It's just not that we should let go of the action or stop the action, or you know, especially when it comes to stuff like climate change. We can't do that. We don't have time. But we also can't leave the thinking bit and the emotion bit until we've allegedly fixed the climate crisis or our relationship with the environment because I don't think it will ever be fixed unless we change that side of things as well so it just has to happen simultaneously and I think without it we are really going to struggle to make genuine systems change. I think this really links to um, your essay on panpsychism as well which I found really fascinating. I wonder could you just define what panpsychism is or means? Okay <laughs> panpsychism yeah, so my understanding anyway, apologies to any philosophers listening, is that panpsychism means the capability of mind in all things. So it's the potential or the existence of mind-like qualities in all things, not just non-human living things, but objects as well. That and and you know, I talk in the essay that there are sort of quite a lot of different Sort of philosophical arguments for that but I suppose probably the most sort of widely accepted one for people that are panpsychists is that if inanimate matter could eventually become animated thinking human beings which indeed is how we began whether you want to start it with you know chemicals in the you know stars or you want to you know think about it as cells or wherever you want to begin at some point inanimate matter gave way to animate thinking matter so the idea is that therefore all matter kind of has the potential for thinking um which i think is a really interesting way of considering the world well i love the example you gave of um 
picking up on your housemates feelings like being hit with this sadness that didn't belong to you and I've definitely had this experience quite a lot and I feel like people just think you're wild <laughs> if you talk about it but it, it's also really interesting in thinking about like our relationship with the world with other people but also with the non-human and I guess you know you talk a lot about in that you talk a lot in that essay about this idea that the loss of the natural world or the loss of a certain kind of language re reduces that ability to see the world. I guess it is an emotional, intuitive way, going back to that. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, it's so funny because, like, when we think about, yeah, exactly what you're saying, like when you feel someone else's emotion subconsciously, that feels quite almost like you're suggesting something supernatural. But, like, you know, my mum's a psychotherapist and she would say that is transference, you know she would fully say that as a therapist you pick up things from people that they don't say and you have no idea about where are you getting that from well hard to say right could be their facial expressions but you know it seems a little bit more deep than that and i think bringing that sort of awareness to you know like you're saying our relationship with the environment as well is just so interesting because of course you're picking up things from other living beings it just it just isn't that kind of weird really when you think about it and so what those things are yeah quite hard to put into language and as you say they're often quite kind of emotional and quite bodily but it's a whole world of shared experience that the less sort of healthy environment we have the smaller our kind of emotional intellectual world becomes you know it's not just about sort of looking at the non-human world and feeling pity even though you know that's not an invalid emotion you know we should also pity ourselves because we are losing so much space to think in and so many opportunities to learn. Mm. Yeah, that's something I've noticed a lot during the pandemic with so much communication being on Zoom. Even though you, you, you can see someone, you can hear their voice, you can read their body language, it is much harder to read people, you know? So there obviously is something essential in actually being close to something or someone in order to fully understand it definitely picking up the like mood you know obviously like I'm a teacher and you, know, you pick up the mood of, of the seminar and how people are feeling it's much harder even if everyone has their cameras on and you can see them yeah much much more difficult I think as well this makes me think back to your white review essay again and you mentioned in that uh, C.A. Conrad's somatic poetry and also Audre Lorde is obviously such a um you know, pioneering text for thinking about something that you mentioned is a kind of like democratizing of the senses. So like away from this kind of rationality of like the written text and its privilege in the West. And then if we were to democ if we were to democratize the senses, so think about like the way in which the body speaks beyond just the written word that comes from a pen or whatever, how that also can create this like deep empathy or create more space linked maybe to this panpsychism as well. Yeah, I, I think that often there's such a pressured expectation on people that if they want to express themselves, it has to be through language and often written language, you know, and that's fine or like that's okay for me as someone who written language is my medium, right? But if that's not the way that you kind of want to express yourself or if that doesn't necessarily speak to what you're going through or what you want to say, then you're quite shut out actually of discourse basically and I think it's really problematic and you know I also think as much as I you know obviously like language it's not the only form of communication that exists and it and it and we lose a huge amount when it's the only form of communication we can have I mean something that I've become I'll try not to bang on bang on about it for too long but something I've been thinking a lot about recently is ritual and um, there's a, a German philosopher called Byung-Hul Chan um, of Korean descent who has a really interesting book about the disappearance of ritual. And I think what's quite interesting in what he sort of talks about is that, you know, we often think of rituals basically just something that is almost like purely symbolic, you know, that it's sort of, it's a nice experience, especially obviously in the West, I mean, you know, where we might get together and do bonfire night or Christmas, you know, but it doesn't necessarily have that much meaning. But unfortunately, I think we've become quite separated from what ritual can be, which is a community speaking to each other through movement and the body, sound, the visual, 
rather than purely language. And I think it allows for a certain type of profundity of communication that can tie and link people together in a way that can be more sort of potent than language. That's not, I'm not denigrating language, but it can be a different kind of communication, a different kind of sharing. And I think with the loss of that kind of experience, which so often is connected to the natural world, because so often ritual is based around, for example, in the West, seasons, seasonal change, you know, transformations. Again, we lose forms of conversation that include non-human experiences as well. So yeah, completely, I think there's a bit of a gap in our sort of like space for bodily communication, if that answers your question at all. Well, I was actually going to say something about the ritual of language as well, how, how like language, I guess like prayer or like um, spells <laughs> or incantation, mm -hmm. like they can often be something that we reach for when we don't actually know what to say or we don't have the words. And, and I think like, um, mm. I don't know, like I was brought up Catholic and I didn't really understand until I was quite old, I think, that like when people say prayers, there's so much actually going on beneath the word. It's not really about the words that they're, they're saying at all mm. so it's kind of a form of language that's actually nothing to do with the language in some ways and i guess i guess it's that use of language to to kind of um create like forms of attention you know obviously that's a very like simone vile idea the highest form of attention is prayer and i wonder if you know i mean i, I wasn't really brought up re religious but I wonder if something about what you're saying is that it feels strange when you're a child hearing these prayers and you think like, mm, these seem a little bit, you know, potentially a bit unemotional or even dry, just in the sense that they're often repeated, you know, so even if they seem really beautiful when you first hear them, you kind of must, you're kind of wondering, well, all these adults like still really feeling the impact of these words after saying them so many times, but actually maybe it's, it's more that the language is almost allowing you to just give your attention in that case i guess to god and use that language as a kind of path of attention and focus and actually it's that attention that is the kind of prayer rather than as you say the actual kind of words which i think is really interesting and i think does have a strong link to poetry not that of course in poetry you hope that the words really do matter but i also think it is about bringing someone's attention towards something more often than it's about kind of telling them something yeah, I guess also if you think about the tradition of eulogy and stuff like that, like words for people to kind of hold on to in times of emotional distress or, you know, the kind of like, yeah, like how ritual is stabilising somehow if you yeah. don't have anything else to cling on to. Com completely. And, you know, of course, as we all know, like often people who might not be like huge fans of poetry will turn to poetry in weddings you know baptisms funerals all those things because as you say yeah it's a, it's a way of like having a ritualized language that that yeah helps you connect and helps you have structure and helps you make sense of, of kind of what's happening thinking as well about the uses of poetry and its link to memory and like archive in your work so which is a you know invoking of a real historical moment and the atrocities of that period and the witch trials and all of that but also it feels like in Strangers, you know, you invoke like the Diggers movement or Anna Mendieta, Dionysus, different folklore like Pan. I, I feel like in your work, you come back to Walter Benjamin quite a lot. And one of the quotes that you used of his, I think in Strangers was that nothing that's ever happened should be regarded as lost for history. So I wonder like how you see the role of poetry as a kind of archive of like forgotten mm. spaces or forgotten stories or reclaiming this. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because like you're right I do I am really interested in Walter Benjamin but also that quote has been so important to me that idea that you can reanimate moments of history and, and moments of the past you know and he obviously talks about reanimating um you know various revolutionary moments in a political sense um and I think poetry can be that kind of archive of the past but very specifically not in that benjamin sense so not just looking back on the past but reanimating the elements of the past that you want to hold on to and it feels like you're reaching across the divide to i suppose continue the work of those that came before you and to also to try and connect to them and not feel 
I'm trying to think of the best way to express this. I often feel that kind of neoliberal capitalism likes us to think that all turning towards the past is nostalgia and sentimentality. But I think it's really like a trick of the conservative mindset that somehow conservatism is the area or the kind of political belief that's associated with thinking about the past and sort of the left and progressive thought was always meant to be about the future. But actually you can't have a future without the past and cutting us off from our past is like I think extremely destructive. So I so I think, yeah, I think poetry can be a way of, of kind of moving into the past and not just talking about it, but connecting with it in that direct way. And as you say, like in which, you know, I'm thinking about the witch trials, but I'm also like I'm not trying to just describe them because I think that's been done and it's it, there's not that much point like the point is not to really describe that women suffered it's to reconnect to some of the kind of revolutionary potential that there were or that there was in kind of like disobedient and rebellious and outsider you know women of those times so i think poetry can be an archive but but one that's alive Mm. and in some ways there as well it's like the capitalist framework of time is one of progress and linearity right and so in these revolutionary moments and movements that you kind of invoke, like the witches, like the diggers, it's like exploding that linear time or this notion of mm. progress, history being told by the, the victors. Because in many ways, if you look to Cure on Waterman, an essay is like so powerful in the way that it has this concertina kind of between the past, this revolutionary moment of proto-communist way advanced, like 300 years in advance of what mm. would follow by Gerard Wynne Stanley in recovering these moments, even though on the face of it, if we understand it in terms of linearity and progress, they were defeated. By recovering it and seeing how it connects with like what we're fighting now and what needs to be exploded now, it's like charts a path forward, I guess. So it's like time, we don't see time in these neat pockets or these like boundedness of like the past, the present, the future. You're putting them back in dialogue, which I think is really important in On Watermelon. Yes, and I love that image of the concertina, and and I think that's exactly what I'm, that is exactly what I'm trying to do, and and as you say, yeah, they failed, you know, in their own particular struggle. As you say, one, history's written by the victors, so that means that perspectives like that get covered over, which is a real shame, because there's so much we can learn from them, but also they lost in a practical sense but their ideas you know continue to have power and also i talk in that essay you know if anyone that's read it about the fact that you know when stanley was, was kind of put on this monument you know uh, by the kind of uh, leadership of of communist russia and you know whatever you think of communist russia that you know many hundreds of years later the fact that when stanley was still inspiring kind of revolutionary action that's a different, I, I don't know if we would really consider that a failure because it's being able to kind of germinate forms of thought is also a kind of action. It's not just about who won the battle, you know, it's whose ideas shifted the parameters of what's possible and what we can do. And as you say, yeah, it totally connects with the struggles that we're involved in now. And it's in being able to look back, I think it also gives us a certain like confidence and strength in what we're trying to do because again you know like i'm saying capitalism is obsessed with linearity it's obsessed with progress and it's also obsessed with this kind of there is no alternative mindset where the only way of being is one that we exist in now it's much easier to open up our own minds to different ways of being if we recognize and remember that different ways of being have already happened you know actually we don't have to start from scratch to break apart a kind of capitalist time and a capitalist form of being. There have already been other forms of being, and maybe if we look at them, it will help us reimagine where we are. Mm. And then, and then I guess that's also you know this idea about um, climate change and it needing to be fixed, which like mm. often can come from leftist perspectives, from like a good place, and it's like trying to make a better world. But this idea of mm. progress in a more progressive sense gets it wrong too. I think around the climate, right? It's kind of yeah. like an attempt to use the ideas of progress, win it back from the right, but actually at the same time, like create this kind of apocalyptic scenario between like destruction or saviour. Yeah, completely. And like, I mean, this probably goes without saying, but obviously if you talk in the terms of like fixing climate crisis, you ignore the fact that the climate crisis is already happening for, you know, many people around the world, especially in the global South. 
but you know in in other places as well the climate crisis like it is it is now and so that's not to say that we shouldn't obviously of course try and like limit it change it but it's a it's a very sort of like misguided yeah perspective even if it comes from a good place of, of wanting to protect the environment to think in those again very linear and quite rigid rigid terms also i think it can again you, you know there's that problem of like personally i don't think we can fix so to speak climate change or let's just say limit it within like a capitalist structure we can do things you know that that's not to say that we shouldn't be pressuring even you know someone like biden who's incredibly centrist like of course we should put pressure of course we should try and do what we can do within the remit that we have but inherently it's just not going to happen and again i could talk about this for ages but like you know inherently if you live in a growth based economy even if you had magical technology that could suck all the carbon out of the air, you will eventually run out of resources. So there is no tech fix, actually, for environmental problems, because we do live in a world of limited resources, which growth is, you know, anathema to. And that's why I think degrowth, for example, is like such an interesting you know, economic theory. But yeah, it, it, it's uh, however well-meaning, it's like perhaps a bit distracting to, to think like that. I guess as well, it's like thinking about like, where the revolution comes from, like emancipated politics, it's like, it isn't about technology or progress. And all the things we're saying about the occult, about poetry of the body, about feminist consciousness is about changing social relations until that's transformed. Everything else can't. Yeah, completely. And, and you know, the, the, the only thing I'll say about that, because obviously you could talk about it for so long, is that, again, <laughs> I do think there's an, also a divide and rule which encourages a kind of culture in which our different struggles are very um, like demarcated and separated off. And I think, not to excuse it, but that leads to, you know, the, let's, let's be honest, the environmental movement, even though you have all these kind of incredible sort of indigenous campaigners who are actually sort of doing the groundwork of sort of environmental change, the face of the environmental movement, of the Western environmental movement is like extremely white, for example. But actually, as we know, like, it, you know, of course, like climate change affects everyone. So this idea that somehow a one person's going to focus on the environment and one person's going to focus on class struggle and what, you know, it, as you say, you, those things will only succeed if they succeed together in social relations shift. That's just, yeah. Um, I wanted to speak to you about the idea of anger or the role of anger in art and politics, because I know you have kind of written about anger as a revolutionary force and particularly as it relates to kind of marginalized identities or if we're thinking about like the figure of the witch and like women's bodies and you know the ways in which they have been hurt and oppressed over time so what do you think about anger and art like what's the relationship between them and, and language maybe as well hmm. I mean I guess Gosh, there's so many so many things you could say about this but I think one thing that art can provide is maybe a space or like a holding place for anger that needs to be expressed because I think quite often anger is something that even if it comes from like a, a kind of social or political or kind of community problem we turn it in on the personal it's not something that we necessarily kind of feel comfortable sort of sharing more widely and we might turn it on ourselves we might turn it on you know the people that we know or whatever often i think anger is quite a private emotion or it explodes in you know in kind of silly ways right rather than actually you know like we lose it if we you know crash our car or you know have a sort of difficult day but that the real the real anger and where it really comes from doesn't get to be expressed and i think art is also a place where that anger can live and be recognised, which I think is really important because it's, you know, it's valid and it tells us about the world. But I also think it's like a power source, you know, it's, it doesn't always have to be something negative because, and I think I talk about this in the, in the White Review article, to be angry, especially in the face of oppressions of different kind, is to recognise that you didn't cause you know that suffering and it's to be able to kind of turn that suffering outwards to someone else and actually that's a very important recognition actually and a very important kind of understanding of what oppression is and I also think especially you know certainly as a, as a female writer women are not encouraged to be angry and we're encouraged to kind of repress and swallow 
our anger. And so I think literature is a great place to actually push back against that and to reimagine you know, d- different forms of being where actually our anger could be validated and expressed and, and shared and not just be a kind of dirty secret. Yeah, I love something you said in your essay on pain, which I think could be applied to anger as well, um, in that finding a way to articulate our sickness or pain as a culture or as a group of people is a reach for freedom. Um, and I wonder if that could be applied to finding a way to articulate your anger too. Definitely. To be able to say what's making you angry rather than, and to be able to kind of, and again, you know, obviously to find other people who perhaps have a similar anger as well, because of course, as we know, that can be extremely invalidating and satisfying to understand you're not alone in that anger. But I think it is a reach for freedom. And I, you know, I think, again, there's a real pressure in the kind of societies that we live in against negativity. And and I think, but I think there's a real difference between like despair and anger. And I think negativity is, you know, it's a part of the reality we live in and it has to be recognised or it will just fester. And actually in understanding our anger, we can maybe understand like what we need to do, what needs to change. A- action and anger, I think, are so close together. And unless we allow us to feel that anger, we're not going to know what to do, what to say, or how to move things forward, or how to change. Um, And I I guess the idea of, like, disgust, too, um, you know, particularly in the figure of the witch, this idea of, like, reclaiming things that have traditionally been bad or disgusting or negative. And I'm going to read something, a very short quote that you wrote, I hope you don't mind, because I just think it's brilliant. So... These women are undoubtedly bad and evil and gross and degenerate and ugly and sexy and shallow and painted and old and young and hungry and mad and dangerous and awful. Yet I am not disgusted. Instead, I am deeply happy to be with them. I am happy because of their power. When I got home, I wrote a poem. It was a spell. To end, could you um, possibly read Spell for Joy? Yeah, okay, well, thank you so, so much for having me on the podcast. It's been a total pleasure. Spell for joy. The sun, the sun, the sun, the sun. Nothing can be trusted. Raise up your rinsed hands, terrible fury and becoming. Take off your clothes. One colossal owner of the void. Brightness folding into itself again and again. Volval or philo. I see a shaking which is total and absolute fear. One day you're gonna die, the hot impossible apple of your perfection. You freckled, you covered in something you utter. Just open up your face, light ice cream cone coming on the inside of your eyelids. Say yes 5,000 times, oh love. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.